Howdy everyone! You're listening to the Buddhist Recovery Network Podcast. Today we're releasing the July Academy Talk with Kevin Griffin. The first Sunday of every month, we host Buddhist teachers for a live Dharma talk and Q&A. Kevin joined us this month and reflected on turning 35 years sober using Buddhism and the 12 steps. We recorded the talk and are happy to share it with those who missed it today. Next Academy teaching will be August 2nd with Gary Sanders. Gary will be speaking on emotional sobriety, feeling comfortable in your skin. You can find the event info on our page, BuddhistRecovery.org. There are a few other really exciting events happening this month. Buddhist Recovery Network is teaming up with Insight LA to host a panel conversation on racism and addiction, specifically looking into the question, is racism an addiction? The panel will feature familiar names like Vimala Sara, Kevin Griffin, but also Holly Whitaker from Tempest and author of Quit Like a Woman, and Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. Siho Morris, a Zen monk and founder of 12 Steps for Unconscious Racial Bias, and Jessica Hope, the founder of Nueve Yorka, which explores the intersection of identity, culture, politics, with wellness. More info can be found on Insight LA's page, or Google Insight LA is Racism and Addiction. While you are on Insight LA's page, be sure to check out The Four Great Efforts of Recovery, which is a three-part series on preventing harmful mental states, cultivating helpful mental states, and compassionate dialogue in recovery. This event is being led by Kevin Griffin and Vimala Sara. Lastly, don't forget about the upcoming Recovery Dharma Summit on the 31st. It'll be an amazing event for folks new to Buddhist recovery as well as veterans out there. For more info, check out recoverydharma.org. Okay, that's all I have for you. Enjoy the talk with Kevin. Love you all. This is Robin. I'm here joining you from New Orleans. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Network Academy. Um, today we have a teaching by Kevin Griffin. Uh, he's going to offer us some reflections on recovery. Thank you for joining us. Um, as always, thank you for taking part in our community and for joining our Sangha and helping to grow it in these really collaborative ways. It's wonderful to see you all. Um, we have a format uh, that usually goes like this. We begin with um, a guided meditation and followed by a Dharma talk. And then we'll open it up for questions or comments uh, after the talk is over. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about Kevin in case you, you don't know him. Uh, Kevin is a Buddhist teacher and author in the Theravada tradition. He's also co-founder of the Buddhist Recovery Network, and he teaches internationally across Buddhist traditions. He's been a practitioner and in recovery for over three decades. I think it's 35 years now. And his uh, teacher training was at Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California, where he still teaches his flagship Dharma and recovery class. 
Besides teaching at Buddhist and other spiritual centers, Kevin works with treatment centers and has consulted with leading addiction researchers. And um, we really appreciate you being here with us on this holiday weekend, Kevin. It's really good to have you back. Uh, nice to see everybody and see a lot of friends out there or in there or over there or whatever the there there is. I am not in my usual Zoom space uh, for those who have been following me since March 13th when I started teaching uh, online. Uh, I, uh, you can, uh, I'm teaching every Tuesday morning, uh, at least uh, in Pacific time, 10 a.m. and Friday night, 7 p.m. The, the links are on my website, kevingriffin.net. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll sit in a minute, I guess. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's just been such a strange time uh, for all of us. And uh, every time I kind of get on a call and see everybody, I just sort of like, it reminds me how not normal things are. <laughs> I think you probably can all relate that you can kind of go through part of your day and everything sort of seem normal and you know, and then all of, something happens where you have to go outside, you put in a mask or go shopping or something and all of a sudden you're like, this is not normal. So uh, doing all my teaching online is not normal. Although this is something there's uh, Recovery Network's been doing for a while, so we were prepared for this, right? It's good. So yeah, let's let's sit. Um, I'll just I'll give some instruction and uh, I'll work with uh, just a simple approach to mindfulness. So beginning by either closing your eyes or lowering your gaze. Just generally being aware of your body, how you're holding your body, your posture, and trying to sit in a way that you can be alert and still relaxed. So that usually means working with the, the spine, having a, a relatively straight spine without being rigid. and coming into stillness. You can do a, a brief body scan, just taking the attention through the body, noticing any points of tension or tightness, seeing if you can soften but also just tuning in to the different sensations in the body. Though we talk about the body as a single thing, but in fact, it's of course got many different elements, different components, and we'll have a whole variety of sensations at any time. Tuning into the life of the body, 
such a helpful way to come into the present moment. Reminding us that our existence is not all in thought or in the mind. Letting your awareness be open to sounds as well as the body. Whatever your environment is. And then bringing awareness to the breath. As we work with mindfulness of breath, we want to really tune into the sensations of breath. Noticing just one breath, how it feels to breathe in and breathe out. Where is it easy for you to feel the breath? The nostrils or the air? comes in and out, that touch sensation, or perhaps the belly or chest, the rising and falling sensation and movement. So as you tune into the breath, there's a a settling that can happen in the body and in the mind. It's a calming, a sense of ease, not striving for anything, not trying to figure anything out. Just letting yourself be here. this simple task, mindfulness of breath, 
turns out is not so easy. The mind is habituated, is trained to be busy, to be thinking. And so even when we make an effort to just be present with the breath, the mind wanders. So our task is often to keep bringing it back. But to do that in a way that doesn't create more agitation. Where we try to bring an attitude of kindness, of gentleness to this practice to this practice of coming back. The mind insists that thinking is the most important thing. Some kind of urgency. And yet, as we observe what's coming up, observe the thoughts, we see how so much of it is just repetition, busy work. Thinking about things that could easily be left aside.
Notice too if there are some mood or emotion that's intruding when you experience or that's in the background even. Often some kind of emotion will be triggering the thoughts. And so to go deeper, we have to turn toward the feelings, allow them, allow them to have space to be felt. And here we might rebel. In fact, the thoughts are sometimes an effort to escape the feelings, to paper over the feelings, to think the feelings away. Again, the breath becomes our tool for this practice. We can breathe into the feelings. Open the chest, open the belly. To give space for feelings to move through, for those energies to just dissipate. can strengthen our focus by looking at the breath in more detail, becoming intimate with those sensations, the whole of the in-breath, the whole of the out-breath. Any spaces in between
May all beings be free from the suffering of addiction. May all beings find freedom and peace. Okay, thank you. I don't have a bell with me, so. Yeah, so I I thought I, you know, I I gave uh, Robin a very sort of generic um, title for this talk and as partly because I thought I would use it as a time to kind of reflect on on stages of recovery and and hopefully bring that in uh, connecting with Dharma, with Buddhism. Um, I've just recently passed a, a sort of milestone in my own recovery, 35 years, and and uh, that's half my life. I'm I yeah. Um, got sober when I was 35. So um, it's, it's interesting to, um, to kind of reflect on the kind of different stages and the, and the challenges and, you know, that, and just, first of all, just to acknowledge that um, I'm in a, I'm in a stage of recovery now. (laughs) It's not like I'm done uh, with the work and, and, and I think one of the things that I've always kind of valued about the recovery programs, and you know, I got sober in AA, was was this idea that I'm not trying to get to some place, but that I'm always in process. And and when, when I got my first sponsor, he he had he had just been through like a really difficult year, and he was ten years sober, and you know, some people might think, oh, you don't want to get somebody who's having problems. But for me, that was reassuring because uh, I, I didn't really feel comfortable with the people who were always a sort of happy, happy, you know, everything is great. All I have to do is not drink and then I'm happy uh, and all my problems are solved. So, so just to kind of go back as I was reflecting on these kind of ways of thinking about the different kind of challenges of recovery, kind of like, like the first challenge is the challenge of, of craving. And, um, you know, and, you know, we live with this craving as addicts and, and, you know, our, our response to it is just to act on the craving. And so our first challenge in recovery really is to be able to cease to act on craving. And of course, craving is at the heart of what the Buddha taught as the problems, that, as the, the more general problem in life that, that's, you know, at the, at the root of suffering. So, you know, that teaching to understand craving and how it arises and how it is sustained is so important in recovery to see that you know it's impermanent but that it's uh it's reinforced every time we act on it you know because this is the sort of delusion of addiction that if i 
take my drug of choice or take this action or whatever my behavior is, that then I'll be satisfied. But the Buddhist teaching on karma teaches us that whatever we do repetitively, that becomes stronger rather than weaker. And it's, it's, to me, that's maybe the most brilliant insight of Buddhism because it's so counterintuitive to how people live. You know, the constant cycle, whether they're addicts or not, the cycle of craving and the cycle of trying to satisfy and avoid pain and, and get pleasure and not realizing that all of that striving just creates more striving. So, you know, that, that can seem like in early recovery, that can seem like, okay, if I can just solve this, then, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll have it together, right? <laughs> and, you know, and, and for many of us, and not everyone does overcome craving. Uh, you know, I, I have a dear friend who's a year more, longer, has been sober a year longer than I, and she still struggles with craving, but she's just committed to the program and to working with it and living with it. But for many of us, uh, and I was fortunate enough that the craving passed very, fairly quickly. So then there's this next, you know, this whole thing that opens up when we let go of that, which is, I mean, there's different ways to talk about it and characterize it, but in some way it's this, this big question of who am I and what is my life about now? So it's, it, you know, as an addict, it allows us to have this kind of simple life, you know, just like I just need to take care of my addiction and I'm good, you know, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, now I'm going to try to do more with my life. And we step into these big challenges of questioning, you know, and, and so immediately we're faced with who, who am I going to be with? You know, who are going to be my friends? Who am I going to be in relationship with? As addicts, of course, we tended to hang out with other addicts. So now we realize that doesn't really work. Well, who do I want to be with? You know, and, and I always thought people who didn't drink and use were kind of boring, you know. So I didn't really want to hang out with people who didn't drink and use. But fortunately, it turned out that the other people who stopped drinking and using weren't so boring. Uh, so, of course, going to going to meetings, going to being in recovery program. But this is, you know, the, the Buddhist view on this, of course, is that Sangha is necessary. Community is necessary to sustain a spiritual path. So we, you know, connect with this very difficult, uh, you know, to practice meditation alone, you know, as a just ongoing <coughs> practice. We, we need Sangha very difficult to stay in recovery alone. And, and of course, that, you know, a whole other bunch of problems come up with that because many of us were not the most, like, healthy social individuals. So now we're trying to have healthy, happy relationships that aren't about s s exploiting other people. You know, what can I get from you? You know, uh, but, uh, but are about finding something meaningful together, sharing a path together. So, so that's one element of this kind of, what I would say is like the, the next step in recovery after kind of dealing with craving is like is community relationship. And that, and that can go on, be, you know, something that's continues through your recovery. And then there's 
the whole like what am I doing with my life in other ways whether uh, you know many people have financial problems or professional problems and, and so uh, you know all of this practical stuff early in recovery it can seem like uh, our we've just got this full-time job of, of sort of straightening out our life. And, the, you know, in the 12-step world, you know, that kind of is, is where we step into the inventory and amends and kind of trying to clean up all that part. But it's, it's also that challenge, of, again, of who am I and, and what do I want to do with this life? Um, the, the Buddhist path presents us with this, these guidelines, the Eightfold Path, uh, first of all, presents us with these ethical guidelines, you know, right action, and then right livelihood, so that, that we start thinking again about, not about, oh, what can I get from me, but what can I contribute to the world? And the 12 steps, of course, in the 12th step, are talking about that, about being of service. And this is, again, such a, such a change from being an addict to that, that self-centeredness to just a complete flip. And, uh, and so we, we step into this, this is really moving into a whole new life in a, in a way. Uh, well, it is, it's not in a way, it is a whole new life. I, I feel like, you know, and again, you know, I, I can't speak for every person in recovery and everybody has their own path. Uh, but I think there are sort of these elements of this path that are fairly common. And, and the, so that there's this kind of way in which early recovery can be about sort of taking on a lot of tasks. And I know at a certain point, I was just like working a job, had a band, going to school. It was like, you know, I was just really trying to, in a way, trying to make up for all lost time. You know, and, and, I, and I think that can turn into you know, workaholism, or that can turn into another kind of fixing ourselves. So, so uh, you know, part of this process is realizing I've got to keep track. I've got to stay in touch with where am I right now? What is it that I'm really trying to accomplish right now? So th there's all that practical stuff happening. But then there's this underlying spiritual challenge and the 12 steps of course make this very explicit with the higher power that pe many people struggle with but but certainly any buddhist path also really is very demanding in this way you know um, the idea of taking refuge in the buddha taking refuge in the dharma taking refuge in the sangha it's a tremendous commitment and, and uh and a kind of devotion we have to bring to our spiritual life. And that, and then as we turn, this means we're really starting to turn inward and we're going beyond the externals of, okay, I'm dealing with my addiction. I'm trying to deal with my work life, my relationship life. Now, now we're turning inward. And, and so many of us, first of all, just have, you know, uh, unresolved trauma, depression, anxiety, bipolar, you know, n name it, right? And, and somebody says, oh, you should meditate because that'll make it better. Well, maybe, you know, sometimes we sit down to meditate and it's like, wow, this is what's going on. What, what am I supposed to do with this? 
like, hold on. Um, so, so I think that you know one of the crises that can happen in now. I think I put I'm putting this just generally in the kind of five to ten year period is this spiritual crisis where we come to and we have may have these ideas of oh I'm going to be spiritual now and I'm doing I'm a yoga teacher and I'm going to you know do this all this good stuff and then we discover that wow there's it's more complicated than that. Uh, you know, again, with the 12 steps, many people run into this, you know, people who are able to like work with higher power, you know, at a certain point go like, I can't do this anymore. My higher power left. <laughs> uh, whenever people say like, I lost touch with my higher power. I'm like, well, then there was something that was not right about that higher power. Cause I don't think you can really lose touch with higher power, but that's another topic. So, so now we're, you know, have to, as I say, you know, many of us come through this kind of spiritual crisis and, and how do we resolve that? You know, um, I have a good friend who's been sober a, a good period of time, over a decade, maybe, maybe 15 years. And, and, uh, he's come on retreats with me and he hates meditating. <laughs> he just hates med. He stopped. He's like, he doesn't meditate anymore. I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, that's, if that doesn't work then that doesn't work. It's not a cure-all, you know, because uh, I can sort of, I can get into that kind of, well, you just meditate more. And sometimes that's not the, the cure. But but it's also true that many people find that to really go deep into their spiritual practice, they need to start doing retreat, you know, and, and uh, you know, as you're, if you are getting into meditation, if it is something that works for you, that, you know, all right, you go on a meditation retreat, go on a couple of those, and uh, this can take you into a whole other world. Uh, some, I've seen quite a number of people start going on retreats and realize that they really want to go deep. And, and those, often the people who want to wind up becoming teachers, uh, or just sort of spontaneously do become teachers because they've they've gone really d deep into their practice. Um, you know, I my own sort of process around recovery and and particularly the twelve steps and Buddhism is pretty well documented in a, in a couple of my books. But just to sort of uh, briefly say, you know, I the the crisis I went through was this. Uh, need to reconcile my 12-step program with with my Buddhist practice because initially I just kept them apart and I didn't want them to touch each other because I was afraid that I was afraid that because I had been, practiced Buddhism before I got sober I was afraid that if I depended too much on Buddhism or or sort of let the 12-step thing slip that I would relapse um, and and I could, initially I couldn't really reconcile them. And so that was about seven years sober when I started to work at reconciling them. And that, that was a, you know, decade long process, really. So, you know, after 10 years, again, like a lot of different things can happen, can open up and, you know, it's, I have to really just recognize that 
and acknowledge that I've seen people relapse at every every period of time, uh, for at least up to tw up to twenty years. Um, so far, I haven't seen anybody with thirty five years relapse. So, you know, <laughs> knock knock on wood, it's somewhere uh, anyway. Um, but but you know, each of these challenges can be something that throws us off the path. And, uh, and so uh, again, I think it's so important to, to acknowledge where you are. There's a tendency, if, you, if any of you, have, I know some of you have kids because I know some of you. So when you're raising kids, one, one of the things I noticed when I was raising my daughter, when my wife and I were raising my daughter, it, which is even a weird term, like we were, it's like we we're raising wheat or something. Anyway. <laughs> That as we were parenting her, we were always one step behind. Every time she would change, and we'd be like, "Oh, all right, wait how how do we how do we get her to bed now? How do we you know what does she, what is she eating now? What what does she like to do now?" And once you you just about when you figured it out was when she changed again and went into another mode. She's like, "No, I don't like that anymore." And you're like, "What? I thought that was the thing you." So. You know, this, the same can happen with recovery. I don't know if that's a ridiculous analogy, but, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we are, are taking care of our inner child, but that we kind of, as we go along, we're like, well, what do I need to do to take care of myself right now? Where am I at right now? You know, and, and we might be trying to use yesterday's solution. Right? So to not recognize that, I'm not in the same space I was five years ago, no, even that I, or I was six months ago. I have to really be, be um, respectful of that. So, you know, the, I think, you know, when you get into 15 and 20 years, here's where I think the real danger is just drifting away from recovery and not not really staying in touch with the fact that you're still an addict and and there's no there's definitely and a lot of people rebel uh with that idea uh and i understand that and you know uh, you know if you don't need that reflection and it and it works for you to just say like I'm not an addict anymore, or I'm, you know, I don't need to be involved. There's again, there's people who have been fine. I know people who who've stopped any active engagement in the recovery program and stayed sober, and their lives are still positive. I just, I also know people who have not, right? Who have who have kind of um, become complacent. For me, it's not really about, even though I certainly acknowledge, I, I mean, I will say I'm Kevin, I'm an alcoholic. It's not about that, you know, about whether I'm going to drink or not, although I, it's clearly I could. Uh, but rather it's about this engagement, this spiritual engagement, this being on a path. And it happens that my spiritual path is tied in with, is intertwined with recovery. 
I mean, it's such an interesting thing, you know, that, and, and again, so I've seen so many people, I know so many people who relate in this way that it was the acknowledgement of our failure or our acknowledgement of our being an addict that put us on the, strongly on a spiritual path and gave us a real kind of direction and and motivation on that path. And so, you know, I know traditionally in, in the AA, you know, it's it's about sponsoring people or, you know, being secretary in meetings and sort of doing service in AA. You know, I see it in broader terms, uh, but um, just in more general terms of maintaining a spiritual practice. And, and yeah, you know, the, the, the beauty though of the, of step 12 and the 12 steps is that it, it points to service as the really ultimate uh, stage, I'll say, of recovery. And this is, you know, very, again, very similar to the Buddhist path. And, and I think it's really interesting to think of it in terms of the Buddhist teaching on self and not self. That if we have insight into the insubstantiality of self, then what we immediately know is that, well, I can't solve the problems of self because there's nothing really to, to not going to say there's nothing to solve, but there, you know, there's nothing to work on exactly. Let me put it in another way that in a more simple, simply that if we see that there's no self, then spending our time trying to fix or take care of that self is a fool's errand. And what we, and, and the natural outgrowth of that, the compassionate outgrowth of that, because that's the wisdom, right? That's the wisdom insight. The compassionate outgrowth, the other wing of Buddhism, is that, oh, I'm going to try to help other people to have that insight. I'm going to do that service. So that's what, you know, that's the Buddha, the story of the Buddha in his awakening, that he has this breakthrough, realizes that he's solved his own problem. And as, as the story is told in the suttas, he then thinks, well, nobody's going to really understand this. But as in the suttas, it says a God comes and tells him, no, there are some people who will understand it. There's some with a little dust in their eyes. However, we understand that if it's just, if we think of it more as in psychological terms, that he has this insight that, oh, no, there are people who can be helped. And, and, and what did he do? You know, the Buddha becomes enlightened at 35, but 45 years, he just walks around in India helping people. And that was all he did, you know, <laughs> nothing else to do because there was, no, he had solved his own problem. Uh, so uh, this, this, you know, this is for us, of course, the, it's a solution for us uh, because 
we recognize how our self-obsession is so destructive for us. So whether we're one day sober or 35 years sober or 45 years sober, self-obsession is always going to be a danger. And turning away from that, finding another way to focus in a positive way, to be of service, to help others in simple ways, uh, in any way, is going to be the, the answer for us. And again, it's, you know, just one of the beautiful uh, spiritual paradoxes that the way we solve our own problem is by helping others, not by trying to focus on our own, fix ourselves. So, um, I hope that's of some help. Those words are of some value. And I'd love to see if uh, anyone has any comments or questions or thoughts they want to toss in here the last few minutes. I wanted to encourage um, folks to uh, hit that raise your hand button if you would like to come live. You have Anne who's going to, Anne, I'm going to, um, would you like to turn your video on? Oh, which Anne? My video oh, sorry. is on. That's Anne, okay. Anne Peruzzi, sorry. Yeah. Yes, your video is on. All right. Hey, <laughs> Hi, Bye. Kevin. Hi. <laughs> nice to see you. Good to hear you. That was very touching. Um, um, I have a question that's been burning inside me for a while, but I, I so, and it's kind of, it's, it's, a, you know, it could go on, but I, I just, I mean, this seems like this will be a conversation ongoing, but um, at what point or what was the most challenging give, giving up or letting go or in court, I don't know how you would say it, um, giving up, letting go of a Catholic God. Hmm. and in and then transforming it into a dharma god what was the most challenging or difficult if you can even i mean yeah. you know well that's just funny. some thoughts I, yeah. I i mean i think i had given that up and then i got it back <laughs> you know in a way uh What, what what was challenging for me it what the, what was really challenging was the was um to try to make it fit with the 12 steps because i was trying to work the 12 steps and and prayers and uh and the steps around god started to like kind of boing bang up against what was for me it was like kind of dissolving you know, in a sense, like, uh, you know, the, my sense of, uh, spiritual, my sense of higher power was kind of uh, becoming just more spacious and, and amorphous. And, um, it didn't, before well, you got into AA, was no, that happening? No, no, no. After, after I worked the program for a while, because okay. as I said, yeah. it's kind of, uh, because, because I was trying to work the program, like, just do it like it is, right, in the yeah. book, and, and do these, and, and, you know, kind of uh, use kind of my devotional side to do that, because I had done some devotional work around kind of Hinduist stuff, you know, 
And and so I could kind of connect through like a devotional feeling like, okay, I'll say the Our Father and I'll just think of it as like opening and having this love. But um, just the language itself and the, and the concept and, and really the concept of this external God that was going to like be involved in some way just clashed after a while with with my sense and, and it really happened you know as I describe it on this one retreat where I was just sitting and trying to do prayers and I was just I was open and focused and spacious and it was like trying to like God seemed like a very dense concept where right. my mind seemed very spacious right and so there wasn't a problem there because it was very pleasant you know I felt very comfortable in that spaciousness but it was hard to reconcile it with what I'd been doing in terms of step work. Mm -hmm. Spacious, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that answers the question. That's a great start. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. No, that's no, that helps a lot. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your question. Yeah. Anil, would you like to come on? Thank you so much. Thank you, Kevin, for your talk. Um, my name, my name is Anil. I'm um, I'm living in London. I um, I was kind of eager to come and listen to you today. And um, just a bit, just a quick backdrop. I um, I've been involved in meditation and spiritual work for you know 25 years, um, as well as psychological work and um, you know, earlier this year, I had a real um, rock bottom experience in my life where um, just everything collapsed. And, um, and a lot of denial that I had been living in for decades sort of surfaced. And, um, you know, um, it turns out that I've got, I'm a sex addict. I've got gambling addiction issues. I've, I mean, the list of addictions just go on. Mm. Um, and I've got really, you know, very deep post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And my, I came into recovery. I, I came into the 12 steps and um, I, I felt really angry. I felt I had been doing all this fucking work in spirituality mm -hmm. with real masters. I mean, these, you know, I'm talking like people like Adi Shanti, mm -hmm. you know, um, these are, these are the written, I'm not talking about, you know, <laughs> fakers out there. These are the real awakened people. Yeah. And, and, and personally, I was having really amazing experiences of, of my eye dissolving, mm -hmm. vastness, all, all of that stuff didn't touch my addiction right. it didn't touch it and so here i am a 55 year old man my life's completely collapsed on step one of recovery work mm -hmm. and it's a breath of fresh air yes and what i've realized kevin if for me is that the whole and maybe it was the way i approached it but for me, that whole spirituality was an avoidance of my pain, mm -hmm. was an avoidance of the deep trauma. I thought I could get out of it 
by going through this into this spiritual whatever it is that I was looking for. And yeah. actually, the truth is this. Freedom is not avoidance of pain, but for now, as I realize, is living in and through the pain. And that really is my genuine experience. And in the few months that I've been in recovery, I can honestly tell you, I've experienced more connectedness with myself, mm. others, and divinity than I experienced in 25 years of living in ashrams and going on retreats yeah. and pretending to be, you know, um, whatever I was pretending to be. Yeah. And there's a part of me that, and I, and I want to be genuine about this, Kevin, there's a part of me that hurts when I hear you say this, that we can avoid the self. Hmm. Right, right. And maybe I'm misunderstanding what oh, you're no. saying. Yeah. No, no, no. That, uh, Anil, that, that's a really important point. That there, There's the reality of that an ultimate reality is that self is a construction. And there's the lived reality that we are in a body, we are in a mind, we have emotions that have to be dealt with. And if those aren't healed, if those aren't taken care of, they're, they're the foundation. That has to be there before you can have any kind of meaningful transcendent experience. This is, and, and what you're talking about is very familiar to me because it's very similar to my own path. Not quite as long that I was you know, in what, you know, in that spiritual bypass, but I was very much used Buddhism and meditation as a way to fix, solve, avoid my pain. And it was only when I got sober that I realized, oh, that wasn't really going to get me anywhere until I had a foundation. So it's really the Buddhist path, sila, samadhi, panya, right? Sila is the starting point. And in the West, we sort of skip over it. Sila is the morality, the ethics, the, you know, the, it, and it's much more than that. To me, it's also our psychological, you know, well-being that has our personal psychology that, that needs to be addressed. The, the trauma, the depression, the anxiety that has to be addressed before we can, there's no foundation for spiritual right. growth with, without that. So we have to, you know, the famous phrase, can't remember who came up with it, but is we have to have a self before we can let go of self. So we have to have a healthy, we have to have a healthy integrated self that that then before we can sort of see it. And I and I'm not like in the Adyashanti school. I mean I've seen him and he's very impressive, but it's a little bit like up here and it doesn't really solve it for me. You know, for there there are people who can go there and people who don't have the kinds of history that people in recovery typically have. People who can just go and kind of transcend and it's, and it's all good. You know, I go there and, you know, I lose my mortgage, you know what I mean? Like I stop showing up and like right. I decide I really don't care about my wife after all, you know, like it just, so I've, I've got to live, I've got to have that foundation and I have, it, have to maintain it. That's one of the reasons why I keep saying I'm an alcoholic, even though I'm 35 years sober, because that seal of foundation, that, as you're saying, that healthy self, I can lose that if I, if I get too lofty in my ideas about who I am.
you know, the, the idea that the way I see the not self is just more in terms of not being self-centered, you know, and not letting my selfishness drive everything. So that's, uh, but, but absolutely, I have to take care of that little, you know, what for me is that kind of little boy in me that needs care, or I'm in deep shit, if you'll pardon the expression. Thank you, Kevin. Just one little thing is now I look at through, now I look at spirituality through the eyes of recovery. And I honestly, and I don't know if it's being judgmental, but I look at so many people involved in those circles. They are <laughs> fucking addicts, man. I'm telling you to their core. <laughs> and it's just, and I love them. And that's where yeah. I was. Yeah. And it's just, I, you're right. You know, the two things have to go hand in hand. And that's kind of what I've learned. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> sure. You have a lot of agreement on this, on this call. Thank you. Um, yeah. We have, do we have time for one more? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Right. Sure. Uh, John uh, from UK, would you like to come on? Oh, hello. <laughs> Thank you. I didn't think I'd get a chance. Um, but uh, yeah, very nice to see you, Kevin. You came to UK a couple of times a few years back, and I was there both times. And I was oh. very new to recovery, maybe seven years ago, something like that. So it's yeah. so nice to see you again. Nice Congratulations on 35 years. So uh, my question is sort of... Um, just thinking about the eightfold path and how do we apply that, you know, because I'm sort of tugged one way, you know, all the stuff with Black Lives Matters, um, LGBT rights, uh, my family from Hong Kong, I'm like, oh my God. Mm. Um, and then I'm in recovery myself. I've just joined this fellowship, um, Adult Children of Alcoholics and Social Families, looking at all the trauma stuff, which is so deep. And then, like my other sharers, I have lots of other cross addictions. I think more have come up since I last see. And then, the th I guess the most important thing for me is white livelihood. So, post COVID, you know, what I do is I'm trying to move my business online. Um, so, it's so many things floating around and you get 12 steps, April puff, blah, blah, blah. So confusing. <laughs> So, I mean, any sort of tips is, so firstly, did Buddha go through these turbulent times during all those years back? Is there anything that Buddha could say about Black Lives Matters, et cetera, et cetera? And secondly, you know, April Path and Life Livelihood in these difficult times. Welcome in these reflections in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, I told Robin when she first, when we were talking about this, that what's been really of uh, uh, most uh, in my mind lately has not been the Eightfold Path, but has been Black Lives Matter. And, uh, you know, I, I've given a couple of talks around those issues, which I am by no means an expert on and, and someone who I feel a great responsibility to educate myself uh, and to uh, do my best to act skillfully and and as the book i'm reading now is learn to be an anti-racist and of course any kind of teaching about any kind of uh movement for liberation <laughs> uh that's about equality that's about love 
that's about peace, is in perfect harmony with Buddhism. So there's no, there's no conflict there. Uh, I'm finding that, yeah, I'm, t- I'm taking a little bit of a, a branch, uh, like I'm focusing on particular things like anti-racism right now, but the Eightfold Path contains it all. You know, if you just look at the precepts, to not kill or harm others, to not steal, right? to not harm people sexually, you know, to not lie or hurt them verbally, to not use intoxicants. I mean, right there, that kind of covers, uh, you know, uh, the social justice uh, movements. You know? And and so I hold the Eightfold Path as something that's, yeah, overarching that, that uh, you know, goes into every part of my life. In order to be skillful in any kind of behavior, whether it's about my livelihood or whether it's about my response to, to racial justice or racial injustice, I have to be mindful. That's always the starting point. Because if I'm not mindful, I get caught up in the anger. I get caught up in the frustration. And that, if, I, if I'm in that, I'm not in the peace. I'm not, I'm not going to change anything. That's just perpetuating the same problems that are all built on greed, hatred, and delusion. So I have to maintain that balance with mindfulness, and that has to be informed with compassion and loving kindness. But, but, I, but I don't have to just sit here and meditate on those things. I can take those, that, in, that awareness, that mindfulness, that compassion into the world. And I have a responsibility to. You know, Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the great Buddhist scholars and leaders, Western, you know, Western Westerners, wrote an essay called A Challenge to Buddhists, which is, I recommend to everyone uh, for thinking about how we take our path into the world. And he is a Buddhist scholar, and he could have easily just stayed in his in Sri Lanka and translated suttas for his whole life. But he came back to the United States and works for social justice now. Uh, it, it's called, it was in Lion's Roar in 2007, A Challenge to Buddhists. You can Google it. And uh, I think I find it very inspiring to see that coming from somebody who's a scholar and a, and a monk who's saying it's not enough to just sit and meditate. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to bring this into the world. And it's hard, you know, There's, it's not easy. You know, no, it, this is not, uh, thank you, there we go. There's a link to the article. Um, I'm finding it very difficult and painful educating myself about racism. Uh, I thought I knew, I thought I understood, and, and I would rather not learn about it because it's so painful uh but you know anyway i i'm not sure i'm answering your question there john i mean in buddha's time i remember there's a caste system wasn't there um yes anything i mean buddha's time is is it anything relevant from his well absolutely first century the buddha was completely opposed to the caste system and he and he 
denied that it was valid. Uh, you know, he, he said that because a Brahmin was supposed to be the highest caste, he said, a Brahmin is not by birth. A Brahmin is, and, and then he would, you know, you, do his own little trick, which is a Brahmin is someone who lives in this way as uh, following the Eightfold Path, basically. So that, uh, so he typically, as he would do, would redefine things and say that. So he was, and he, he ordained lower caste people. Um, you know, the person who, who, who first recited the, the uh, precepts was, had been um, like a, a barber, I believe, and, and what, what's like the lowest caste, but he was considered, he was enlightened being. And, and so, yeah, the, the Buddha was an anti-racist, <laughs> we can safely say. I guess another one of my question is just as a photographer, we're all struggling for money. Well, not all of us, many of us. How do we, you know, what be skillful about like right livelihood to make money and then be able to be a social justice and yeah. these things? I guess that's another one of my question. Well, I mean, right. And, and it kind of goes back to what Anil was talking about in terms of, you know, are we going to just try to be transcendent spiritual beings and then realize we don't have the rent? You know, this is, and, you know, this is, again, the challenge of like, you know, we can't all be like gurus and, and uh, therapists or whatever, you know, people have to make a living. And, and to me, the essence of right livelihood is right intention. I mean, there are, there are occupations that are unskillful, you know, like, you know, uh, professional killer or something. Dr uh, drug de drug dealer i've i've done that probably many of us have done that but but most jobs professions can be done with love and with you know with the spirit of service and that to me is the essence of it even if you're doing something that seems somewhat rote uh you know you're a barista or you're uh you know I worked as a technical writer. That was nothing spiritual about it, but I tried to do it with the sense that I'm doing this to help people. So I think it's it's the intention more than the action itself. Because we know there are people who are doctors, well, you think that's such a great right livelihood, but who can be very unskillful in the way they treat people. And they're, and they're not bringing right intention. They're not bringing love into their work. So. I think we have to be responsible, uh, you know, first of all, right? We have to be responsible or we're not, we're not, if we can't take care of ourselves and our responsibilities, uh, you know, it doesn't do any good to meditate all day, you know. To finish, is that, I guess the COVID is just a huge fear. So you always people dying in America, same in the UK. How can we deal with this fear to move forward and to back into society, make a living and all that? I guess it's fears cut hatred, cut the hatred poison, is that right? Fear's really bad for it, isn't it? How can we do, are you talking about the fear? Your your connection's not that great, John, so I'm trying, you said, so you're talking about the fear of the coronavirus, is that your you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, the fear of that, you know, you know, what's that causing to UK society, American society, yeah. how do we make a living? You know, how can I be skillful about, I mean, fears, you know, Step ten, we can ask God to remove it, but then I don't really believe in God. Bloody hell! 
<laughs> right. How about those days? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure I have any great wisdom about fear other than, uh, well, I won't say this is wisdom, but that, you know, we have to walk through it, you know, like we have to look at, that we can't let fear stop us. And, and I mean, certainly a meditation practice can help you with fear because it can help you to be calm, you know. So certainly, um, you know, to use your meditation to bring calm into the body is a good starting point so that you can be functional, right? Because if you're caught up in anxiety and fear, uh, the mind is so agitated that you can't function effectively. You know, you can't think clearly. So meditation is a really important tool for calming so that we can then move past fear. Uh, is, is Buddha like a fearless person? Does he have any fear in his day-to-day? Say, say again, say that again. Um, just to finish, so was Buddha, was Abraham, was he a fearless person? Um, it sure seems like it, you know, it certainly seems like it when you see the things that he took on in his life, uh, and how he approached his own path, it seemed like he was not afraid to try anything. And, and in the mythology of Buddhism, he was attacked by Mara, the tempter in many different ways. And the power of his loving kindness and his awareness allowed you know all those things to kind of dissipate thank you thank you so okay. much thank you everyone i see we've, we've run over a bit but thank you for your great questions john and um kevin um yeah i i don't know i think that um the the way that you've shared um just it it brings to mind your commitment and how how it your intention and how this has to be carried day after day and it also brings to mind just the gratitude that we can offer ourselves for you know being present here being present in each hour and and being gracious to ourselves for every day that we're committed to um to our recovery efforts so yeah much appreciated um i wanted to recommend a book and that book is your book um, living kindness, Buddhist teachings for a troubled world. And you can find it on Kevin's website. It seems like it might be appropriate reading for the day. Thank you. Yes, I hope so. I, I, I thought things were bad when I wrote it, but, uh, they've gotten worse. I have to say hi to Vince. Hi Vince. It's great to see you and Greg and Gary, uh, you people I haven't seen in a while. And Jennifer Block, hello. <laughs> Just seeing yeah. your name there. And Gary's going to be offering a teaching next month. He's oh, going good. to be our, our, our teacher next month. Um, so that's Sunday, August 2nd. Um, so yeah, we look forward to seeing yes. you there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Vimla Sara, president of the Buddhist Recovery Network. Our mission is to help promote the use of Buddhist teachings and practices to help people recover 
from the suffering caused by addictive and or compulsive behaviours. Our organisation is a volunteer-run non-profit which has expenses. We offer free monthly live teachings on the Academy, free resources on our website and all our podcasts are free. We also organise a bi-yearly summit where many of us come together. We rely on the generosity of you, our listeners, and our interviewees in order to produce these offerings. We are asking you to donate to help with our expenses. Thank you. And to show our gratitude for your support, all Patreon supporters will receive access to special guided meditations. To unlock these, please offer your support by going to patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Again, patreon.com forward slash Buddhist Recovery Network. Thank you so much for your generosity. May all beings be free from the roots and the causes of suffering. May all beings be at peace. Thank you.